Okay, right on. You got your Bibles. We're in Titus chapter 2. And um, Titus 2, as we, this gets really practical, okay? So it's like nobody, nobody's, um, nobody's going to escape the reach of the Word of God this morning. Not that I ever think that happens. But in particular, this chapter, I think chapter 2, because Titus or Paul to Titus addresses all sorts of people and various peoples within the church. And from the previous conversation of where chapter 1 was, where, where Titus was called to select elders to lead the church, and he was called to deal with false teachers who were, you know, teaching myths and teaching legalism. Titus was uh, being told to be a man who teaches sound doctrine. And Paul had been speaking about all of these sorts of things, about insubordinate people, empty talkers, deceivers, those who are devoted to myths. And now he turns the conversation uh, to contrast the false teachers to the type of man Titus is supposed to be and the type of people God's church is supposed to be full of. Sp Titus is to speak to things that belong to healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. So if you look with me at verse 1, we read this. But as for you, that's in contrast to the false teachers, Titus. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so the instructions to his son in the faith continue as Paul downloads to Titus certain things that need to be taught in the church and practice in the church where he's serving there. He's on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean there. And Paul says to Titus that he should concern himself... Uh, with teaching according to sound doctrine. Now, when we begin this talk about sound doctrine, you would think that Paul's going to have some theological treaties, some, some theological teaching, some doctrines that he's going to unfold. But instead, what he's going to talk about is the practical application of the Word of God to people's lives every day and what that looks like. We talked about this last week. Therefore, Paul, soundness in faith, to be sound in doctrine, to have good theology, means that your, your theology, what you believe, harmonizes with how you live. It's not, you're not an empty talker. You're not a deceiver. You're not to be one, a person who says one thing and then lives another way. But there's soundness. Paul is talking. He's going to talk about the kind of lives people are to live in God's church. You don't. Jesus is not inter inter interested in us becoming a group of people who have all the right theories, all the right beliefs, all the right doctrines, all the right theology that's just head knowledge, and it doesn't touch the ground, our feet touching the ground, so to speak, the rubber meeting the road. Our faith is not just up here. Faith touches the works of your hands and the things that you do the practical areas of your life. And if our theology and doctrine does not translate into every life, well, then I would say this, and Paul would say this, it's not sound doctrine. It's not sound theology. It's this idea, don't tell me what you believe. Show me by how you live. And so if our belief about Jesus translates into everyday life, then it's sound. It's, it produces health in us. It, it's the fruit of sound doctrine. And if it does not touch everyday parts of our life, I would just tell you this. It's just emasculated and powerless thinking. 
And so we need to be sound in our doctrine. And, and here, Paul is going to tell Timothy what that looks like. And Paul is going to speak to various groups of people in the church, men and women. So check it out, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I was thinking about this. Who qualifies as an older man? So how would we define an older man? So let me pick out a few people in the room, and I'll let you know who's... No, just kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, okay? About tw- above 25. I like that right there. Above 25, you're an old man. But sound doctrine dictates, he says here, actually, I think older man is referring to someone who's probably, I'll make mention with this with regards to the women too, they've, they've raised family, okay? They've gotten on the other side of raising family, probably still working, but in a more mature, stable place in life. And Paul says this, that sound doctrine dictates that older men be sober-minded. I always love that picture in Scripture. Other Bible versions say temperate. To me, that speaks of being even-keeled. That when you're older, you know, your reaction to swing hard this way or to swing hard that way um, starts to lessen out. And you get more stable, hopefully. You're avoiding the extremes the longer you walk with the Lord. You're learning to restrain your behavior and your attitudes. And to be sober-minded, I love that. It's like, be clear-minded. You're a clear-minded man. Not under the influence of one under influence or another, but uh, influenced by the Lord. So it has this idea that the sober-minded man doesn't go to excess. He's not a slave of his appetites. Whether it's his eating on Thanksgiving. I might be a slave of my appetite today. I'm going to just confess, okay? But not every day. Although I will mention this. I was thinking about Boomer's Brunch. You know what, Boomer's Brunch? Those Boomers, they're always trying to fatten their pastor up. All the time, you know, they... They're always like, here, have more of my dish. Have more of my dish. Have more. And I can't say no. I got to try a little bit of everybody's dish. But, but the sober-minded man is not a slave to his appetites, whether he's eating or drinking or sleeping or when it comes to spending his money or engaging in recreation. He keeps a firm hand on his desires and his thinking. He's sober-minded. Paul says he's to be worthy of respect. And of course, there is that natural respect that comes with age, you know. To those that are older, your age gives you a voice of authority. Because life experience, because of, you know, longevity of walking with Christ, if you've served Him a long time. I I always love being around older Christians, don't you? People that have walked with Jesus longer than me and the wisdom that they have and the faith And Christ that they have that's been seasoned by endurance. Seasoned by pressing through and going through all the things that life has thrown at them. They've been refined by the fire, so to speak. Because they've walked with Christ for a long time. And so older men are called to live a life that brings that kind of respect. And we're going to see here that Paul says, It will give you a voice to speak to those who are younger in the faith than you. He says they're to be self-controlled, which is actually going to be mentioned four times in this text, the need for self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It, It simply means that you have the ability to control your behavior and your thinking in terms of how you react to situations and 
and the discipline of yourself, to control your behavior in regards to your impulses and your urges. Self-control is the ability to bring those reactions and impulsions into submission to God's spirit in you and in his word, in his word. You know, I think about someone who's self-controlled, you know, as a man gets older, typically, hopefully, he doesn't get as angry so quick, right? I mean, us guys, we, I, I could tell you, when I was younger, poof, you could flash me up really fast, really fast. And it hasn't slowed down that much, but I'm getting a little better at self-control, okay? Paul says they're to be sound in faith and love and in faithfulness. So older men, they need to know what they believe. The convictions that they hold about Jesus and about life should be grounded in God's word. They're sound in faith. Your faith is an older man. We're going to read here should be an example to those that are younger. Your love for people and your love for Jesus and your love for the body of Christ and your love for the things of God should shine through in your life through everything you go through. Seasoned with grace and stable in character. When young men in the church look to the faith of those older men in this body, older guys, your life should motivate the younger men in this room to keep serving Jesus. Amen. Say, look at that guy. I want to be like that. Your life should help produce endurance in others. Then verse 3. Paul addresses older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. So, older women, what age of a woman does Paul have in mind? Well, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, okay? Um, I, you know, I may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not dumb, okay? <laughs> no. No, you know, what's clear from a little bit further reading in this text is this, is that I would say, just like I said about the men, with regards to older women, raising a family, kind of that stage of life seems to be behind them. Because Paul's going to talk about helping younger women, the older helping the younger. They've been through the throes of, you know, babies and young children and the business of motherhood and being a wife and managing the home. And so Paul says some things here. He says they're to be reverent in their behavior. In the way they live, their lives should have uh, reflect reverence, which is holiness. They're not to be slanderers, Paul says. You know, I think about just uh, gossip. I think especially in you know the culture of Paul in Titus's day when there wasn't cell phones and how did word get around the community? Well, Paul says they're not to be slanderers or accusers. It's the same word that's used to describe the the character of Satan who. The Bible tells us Jesus said brings accusations against the people of God before the Lord all the day long. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so Paul's instruction to older women is don't be an accuser. Don't be a slanderer. Don't be one who gossips and spreads rumors and boxes others into little categories. Older women are not to be part of that in Christ. It's like the use of the tongue Paul addresses with women. Exercise control. That's not becoming of a woman of God to spend your energy in that way. He says in the use of wine, use some discretion, show some moderation. 
You know, I just think about what we see in the culture of this world, the wine culture, where nothing can be done unless the bottle of wine comes out for every social thing, right? Paul says, exercise some self-control in that area. Uh, From the negative to the positive, he says this to the older women. Teach what is good. Teach what is good. Paul puts an emphasis on the older woman in Christ and her ability to teach that which she knows in the Lord, which I think is awesome because experienced godly women are usually such excellent teachers. Have you noticed that in the body of Christ? Women have a very discerning, good gift of being able to share a wisdom that they've learned in the Lord and the things that they know in Christ. Their their experience can be invaluable to the encouraging of younger ladies. In fact, look at verse 4. This is what Paul talks about in this area. He says this, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So it's not, you know, uh, that an older woman can just simply train a younger woman how to run at home, Paul says, but you can you can teach those who are younger in the Lord, uh, not just to run a house, but to run a house, to raise a family, to have the right spiritual attitudes and serving your husband in your heart and in your mind. You know, it's kind of funny, actually, that Paul says this. It's like, you can teach, an older woman can teach a younger woman how to love her husband. I'm like thinking, what, really? Are we that hard to love like us guys? Is that, is that how this goes? You know. So it's kind of a funny instruction, you know, it sounds surprising that younger women need to be trained to love their husbands. And, you know, prior to getting married, you know, maybe lots of young women imagine nothing can be easier to love a husband. And then you get to know the guy a little more. And Paul, see, Paul knew this. Paul knew better. There can be things about a husband that makes him difficult to love. Or that difficulty might lie in the wife herself. But here is where older women, more experienced Christian women, can help with appropriate counsel and instruction and teaching. It's not just the husband. It can be the kids. Teach them how to love the kids. Every mom knows how difficult it can be to keep a right attitude about your kids when you're in the thick of the fire, right? Remember that old, yeah, husband's at work, you know, and you're... Looking after those little rugrats, I think about the old cartoons of the Tasmanian devil. And everywhere that devil traveled, there was just a trail of destruction and mess behind him. It's kind of like having two or three kids at home, right? You know, little ones in your home, they just leave that trail of destruction everywhere they go. It's, it's no wonder that ladies who survive that in Christ can be a source of encouragement to those who are in the midst of it. Yes, I'm talking about you. So here's the instruction to those who are younger. I, I, I watch my wife do this, actually, with skill. I like it about her. I hear her talk to the young moms and say, hey, this is what we did. This is how we raised our kids. These are the sleep cycles that we patterned, and this is how we disciplined. This is how I got to church. I appreciate that about my wife. My wife says, I got to church as a single mother with three little children because my husband was always at the church already because he's in pastoral ministry. So my wife never gives breaks to young women about getting to church with their little children. I don't say that to discourage. I say that to sharpen you. Getting your children, young moms, 
And church is important with the people of God. Finding time for your husband. It matters. It's good counsel that you need young, young women from those who are older because the time will come when the kids aren't little anymore. And if you spent your life only serving them at the expense of caring for your marriage, well, there's going to be challenges later in life. And so Paul instructs the older women to care for the younger. And Paul instructs here that home is to have a priority. Marriage is to have a priority. Raising children is to have a priority. And he actually calls this, listen, this is important. This is sound doctrine. This is what it is to have sound theology it works itself out in the home. It's interesting that Paul doesn't address a career or a job. He addresses home life. And we see older men and older women as we read this text. They're just such an asset to the body of Christ, aren't they? Like I'm so thankful for the older folks in our church. It's like I, I'm 48. So that 50 mark, you know, if that's the mark of being old, I'm right there. Okay. But I'm so thankful for the older men and women in our church. And I would say to you, those that are older, there is never an excuse for you in the body of Christ as you mature in life to complain and grumble that there's nothing for you to do in the body of Christ. Look around. There are young men that need a father in the Lord. There are young women who need a mother in the Lord. There are young husbands who need the counsel of an older man. There are young Mothers who need the counsel of an older woman or wife. You are older. Let me encourage you this morning. Take on that ministry in the church. It doesn't have to be assigned to you. Nobody has to say to you, please do this. Do it. Because this is what the word of God instructs you to do. Maybe adopt a younger family. Pour yourself into that family. Can I help you with your kids? Have you guys had a date night lately? Why don't I look after the kids so you can go on a date night? Pour yourself out. You know, last week I said to you that, uh, to the men and to the women, you, you need to have someone younger in the Lord whom you're investing in. You need to have a Timothy. You need to have a Titus. Men, you need to pray to find a man who is younger to be your son in the faith and invest in him. Pray for him. Teach it. Teach him what it means to be a godly man. I love it when an older man tells me that he is praying for me. This past week, somebody, somebody walked into the church. They don't come to our church. I know them from the community. They're a believer. They said, hey, by the way, I pray for you every day. I'm like, wow. Thank God. Thank God. Help that young man become a better husband or dad. Ladies, older women. Find a younger woman who can be your daughter in the faith and pour your life into her, praying for her, teaching her what it means to be a mother and a, a woman of God and a wife. And so we're given these instructions here. Here younger women are told, love their husbands and their children. Be self-controlled and pure. Be kind. And Paul says, working at home. Remember, this is sound doctrine, right? Doesn't say get a career. Which there's so much pressure to do in this culture. He says, manage your home. Your ministry is, is your children and your home and your, your family and your marriage and your husband. So I would say to guys, you know, let your wife 
Manage the house, you guys. Ladies, your ministry is to God and to your family. Your ministry is your children. Take care of business and honor God as you manage and lead your family and your home. Paul says, be submissive to your husband. Just like Christ is the head of the church, so the husband, Ephesians chapter 5, is the head of the family. He's the leader, so you have to let him lead. Guys, I would say this, when you love your wife and you're willing to lay down your life for her, and you put your wife and your family ahead of yourself, uh, I would say this, you'll find that you probably will have very little trouble with your leadership at home. Because your wife will see that you desire to follow God and lead her and love your family. And submission is not hard when it is a response to your love. You know, guys, if there's struggles in your home, I would say this, you know, struggling to lead your wife. How are you expressing your love for her? She will not want to follow if she doesn't think you're leading. But for wives, that's not an excuse. You need to be submissive to your husband. And so do these things, Paul says. And it's interesting why he says this. He says, then no one will be able to malign the word of God. That's the motivation. It's like, who cares about your theology? Who cares about, you know, if someone's on the outside of the church I'm speaking of. They don't care about your theology. They don't care about your doctrine. They care very little about what you believe with regards to Genesis and the creation of man. They don't care about your eschatology and what you believe about the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. If the world looks at us and says, look at them, their homes and their lives and their marriages and their families are a mess, they zone out. Who cares about your theology and doctrine if it comes at the expense of your family? Your home and your family can cause others to turn to Christ and look to the word of God. That's what he's telling us here. And so I guess the danger in those statements is that we also need to be cautious that we don't try to build our families and our marriages into these perfect little facades, right? I think over the years that one of the things the church has made a deep mistake in is that we've turned our children's and our spouses into idols. We're not to worship our children. We don't worship our husband. We don't worship our wife. We don't look to them to be the source of our peace. We have to be cautious that we don't try to build these perfect little facades again around our homes and families. My home, I tell you what, my home is far from perfect. It's because I'm there. And I would say this, look, you don't have to have it all together to even be a part of this church. I just want to encourage you, if you're like, wow, and our home life is like just a disaster these days. Our marriage is a struggle. We're having trouble parenting our children. Look, you don't have to have it all together to be part of the body of Christ. I don't have to have it all together as a father or husband, but what we do here is we bring Jesus into the messiness and we say, Jesus, would you bring order? Would you change us? Would you make us men and women sound in faith and doctrine? So this is good, practical instruction from Paul. I think it's actually very interesting, you know, if young Women, I would encourage you to pay attention to what Paul says here because what he says is antagonistic to the views of this world, isn't it? Where it's like, no, no, you know, you've chosen a lesser path to be a mother. 
You've chosen a lesser path to be at home and to be a wife. But what Paul says here is this is the pattern that leads to God's blessing, that leads to God's word being honored. This will show health and soundness, and it will have an impact and be attractive to those who don't know Jesus by living this way. And so Paul is giving this instruction, old men, young men, older women, younger women, so that those on the outside of the kingdom would look at believers and see the difference in their home life. See the difference in their marriaging, marriage. See the difference in their parenting. That was like marriaging. That was like marriage and parenting put into one word. And so good instruction. He says to the young men, look at verse six. Young guys, pay attention to this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. It's interesting that this one instruction gets a lot of emphasis from Paul. Self-control. And specifically to young men, he zones in here. Young men, you need to learn through God's help how to manage your reactions, your urges, your anger, your lusts, your impulses, your thinking, your strength. I mean, men need to learn self-control. For young guys, this is especially important in the area of sexuality. If you don't honor God with your sexuality prior to marriage... Don't think that getting a wife and putting a ring on your finger is going to fix anything. You need to practice self-control now because self-control will always be a battle. You're not the only one who struggles in this area. And so this is why you need a man who's like a Paul in your life, who can speak, who can encourage you, who can say, I've been there. I've struggled there. This is how I've got victory. You need a spiritual father with whom you can be accountable and honest, and who is open to being helpful. Older men, come alongside a young man. Help them in these areas. Ask the hard questions. Be open about your own struggles, especially if Jesus has given you victory. Share with them. Look at verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So I think in addressing young men here, it's like the instruction turns to Titus, who himself is a young man. And Titus was called to live in such a manner that his life was to be a model for others to follow so that he could impress his life and that which Christ has done in him into those to whom he ministered integrity, seriousness, soundness in, in speech were things that he was called to so that he could not, his enemies could not even condemn them if they tried. I was, I was reading Warren Wearsby in this and he speaks of Titus as a pastor and he says this, it's not easy to pastor a church. You don't punch a clock and you're always on duty and you must be careful to practice what you preach. Hypocrisy in speech or conduct will ruin a man's ministry. And so Wearsby says this, no pastor is perfect, just as no church member is perfect, but he must strive to be the best example possible because a church will never rise higher than its leadership. Whatever the church, whatever the pastor wants the church to be, he must be himself first. This is always true in discipleship. 
You never take those whom you're investing in beyond where you're at. If you want to teach them to have a quiet time, you have to have that practice. You want to teach them uh, to serve in the church, then you have to serve in the church, whatever it might be. Look at what he says in verse 9. This is interesting. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So again here, it's like soundness and faith is to uh, have practice to what you preach. And the Lord says this, uh, uh, sorry, Paul says this, as you do this, it's like, it's like putting ornaments adorning the doctrine of God who is our Savior. I think as you read this, to me, you know, in our day, these principles for slaves refer to employees. But it's interesting, you know, the days in which Paul wrote, the, the Roman Empire had at least 50 million slaves. Some say 60 million, okay, in the Roman Empire. One third of the city of Rome was slaves. It's hard for us to imagine this, right? Because we, we don't have this kind of culture. People became slaves because they were taken as prisoners of war or as a punishment for a crime or because of debt or through kidnapping or being sold into slavery by a family member, a parent. Some of them sold themselves into slavery. Many of them were born as slaves. They worked domestically in people's houses. They were laborers on the farm they were accountants, craftsmen, teachers, soldiers, managers. Some were even doctors. And they could be treated harshly. Like Roman law did not forbid the harsh treatment of a slave. But often they were treated well as a member of the family. They might even be permitted to buy their freedom. Or, you know, maybe if their master didn't have someone to give the estate to that could be handed off to a servant in his household. And so, you know, today we look around and we, we see slave, slavery or talks of slavery and it's like, oh, we hate it. It's abhorrent to us. This week in my quiet time I was reading and I've been stewing on this lately. You know, it's like the Bible gets attacked for being pro-slavery. It's like, oh, well, the Bible instructs slaves. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's actually not a correct view of what the word of God teaches. I mean, here's the gospel. It's coming into the Roman empire. And let's say you've got 50 or 60 million slaves in that culture. What Paul here is doing is he's recognizing that slavery exists and he's giving instruction to it. But what we've seen in the word of God, or what we see in culture is this, that anytime a nation serves the Lord, and Judeo-Christian values are built into it, what begins to collapse and eventually disappear in that nation? Slavery. Christianity will lead to the end of slavery, but Paul is giving instructions in the meantime. In my quiet time this week, I, re I read this in Exodus 21, verse 16, and I thought, oh, this is so interesting for those who would say the Bible is pro-slavery. Well, it says this in Exodus 20, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay? The word of God does not promote slavery, but it acknowledges that it exists. And so it gives instruction for it to health, to function healthily. I think this instruction to slaves is, is, is good for us as workers, as employees. 
you know, Christian employees need a model to follow. And so Paul says some, some things that are going to lead to health in the workplace, soundness in the workplace. And it's not always easy, right? I was like, man, you want to put your faith to trial here? It's like, okay, go to work, right? And all the different people that you work with. It's not very easy to have a boss who's not thoughtful or will overwork his employees. But as Christians, what we're instructed to do here is to be submissive, obey our employers, go the extra mile, be a servant even in the workplace. When you do it, it makes Jesus attractive. You've ever had one of those bosses who when it really came down to the details of certain some job that you're doing, you're like, I actually know the job better than this guy that's telling me what to do. You ever been in that spot? It happens. When Christians uh, serve in the workplace, it's like uh, they're not to talk back to their boss or it's easy to talk about the boss in a negative way, to talk about the company in a negative way when others are in the room or around the lunch table or when the boss is outside of the room. When Christians do that, it doesn't help anything to make Christ attractive to your boss or to your coworkers. So don't talk back, you know, don't lip off the boss behind his back. You know, so often when I was working in the workplace, I'd have that okay. It's like I could get out of here right now, just slip out, clock out. And my conscience would say, no, you're a follower of Christ. Finish your shift. And slaves are to be subject to their masters in everything. And this duty of submission is emphasized here again. Submission to masters. Chapter 3, Paul's going to talk about submission to rulers and authorities. And so Christian workers would say this. Don't steal in the workplace. The word that Paul uses here is pilfering. You know, your employer's part room or supply room is not your personal five-finger discount store, is it? That's stealing. It doesn't belong to you. It didn't come free to your company, and it's not yours for the taking. We all know that kind of stuff happens in the workplace. And for followers of Christ, it doesn't matter if others are doing it. It doesn't matter if that's what's considered normal. You can't use the, they owe me. I've earned it excuse. It's stealing. And for a professing follower of Christ, that behavior has to stop. So Paul says to Titus, if a worker doesn't do these things, pilfering and all of these things, he'll prove himself to be trustworthy. You know, if you've ever worked in management or run your own business or just even worked in the workplace, don't employers place such confidence in those who are trustworthy? To have a trustworthy worker is so valuable because they're hard to find. I remember when I was running my own little small business and um, talked to others in management, and it was always the same thing. It was like the challenges faced in finding quality people who'd show up and be honest and give a hard day's work one who's trustworthy and doesn't need to be babysat to do the task. It says a lot about your character and your faith and the God whom you serve when you simply prove yourself to be a trustworthy employee. I think of Joseph. Remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? In the house of Potiphar, 
proved himself to be trustworthy. When he was sent to prison for something he didn't do in prison, he proved himself to be trustworthy. When God raised him up out of that prison and he served Pharaoh, he proved himself to be trustworthy. And God was honored in every one of those places. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in, this, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, there's a lot in there. This morning, I just want to point out three things in those verses and uh, point this out to us. That the motivation to live like this as an older man, as a younger man, as an older woman, a younger woman, as, a, as an employee, Paul gives us the motivation. And here's the motivation it is the grace of God in your life. That's the motivation. Grace is the unearned favor of God. The unmerited, unearned favor of God. You know that old acronym, grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. And Paul says this, grace is your motivating power. So if you're like, well, why should I do this? How, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be a better employee, a better husband, a better wife? a better mother, a better father? How do I do this? How do I find the strength to make this happen? Do I just discipline myself harder? Do I have to, you know, find something inside myself to do this? And Paul says, no. Our motivation to be these kind of men and women is not empowered by something inside of us, okay? This is so important, church. The fuel that empowers you is the grace of God. That's the fuel in the engine. There is an outward source. That's the promise here. You're like, I can't do this. I can't be the husband God is calling me to be. I can't be the father God is calling me to be. I can't be the mother or wife God is calling me to be. I'm dying in the workplace right now. I can't do it. And what Paul says is that there is an outward force available to you Grace that comes from God and is given to us by faith. Grace is a powerful, powerful force in the life of a believer. And three things Paul says that grace does for us. The first one is this. Grace redeems us. People can't save themselves. And so Paul says this. God's grace had to appear and his grace appeared in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ appeared, he came to earth as a child. He grew to be a man and he went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we could be forgiven. He died, he was buried, he was placed in that tomb. And three days later, he was resurrected from the dead so that he could give to us life, grace, eternal life. And Jesus has ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again. And God the Father, Paul says, in his grace, 
sent his son to redeem you from sin. And there is a universal need for this, right? To be redeemed from sin. And God who created you provide the universal solution in his son, Jesus, for all who would believe, who would repent of sin and come to him for the forgiveness of sin and for eternal life. And verse 14, it says this, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from the lawlessness. To redeem us from not being able to do it. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. That you might become the righteousness of God. That says something about your life as a husband. Your, your, your life as a wife, as a parent. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gave himself in our place. And so Paul says this, God in his grace has redeemed us. He's bought you. He's rescued you. He's purchased you back and he's made you acceptable to himself through his son, Jesus. And all of us, all of us were slaves to sin. Unable to free ourselves, but Christ came and he gave his life as a ransom for our sin. And his perfect life met the requirements that God's righteous law demands. And God, in his grace, through his son, forgives our sins and imparts to us life and power and grace to serve him. In fact, Paul says that this grace is available for all people. For all people. The only name by which you can be saved through the name of Jesus. There's no other way. So grace redeems us. But Paul also says this, that grace will transform us. The grace of God that redeems us will also transform our lives and it will make us more like Christ. God's grace in your life will change your attitude. It will alter your appetite. God's grace will transform your actions. It will change the desires of your will. It will change the objects of your ambition. Look what he says again in verse 12. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what is Paul saying here? That God's grace teaches us to say no. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions, but it also teaches us to say yes. Lord, I say yes to self-control. Lord, I say yes to godliness. We live in this present age and what Paul is telling us is that we're not to be like it. We're not to be conformed to it or to live by its standards. God's grace works. And, and verse 14 says that it works to pure, that God uses it to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good things. So grace transforms us by purifying us. Thirdly, we'll wrap here. Grace rewards us. Grace rewards us. Grace looks forward to the return of Christ, we read here. Because of God's grace, we know that Jesus is coming again. He came once and he's promised he's coming again. Uh, these, these verses actually clearly teach that Paul saw Christ's return as something that was still yet in the future. 
And church, we need to live as those who are always expecting the return of Christ, living like people who are going to see him face to face. That's his grace to us. It has a constraining power. It has a motivating power to know that Jesus is coming again, that he's redeemed me, that he's transforming me, and he's going to come and he is going to reward me. And so Paul says to Titus, this last verse, verse 15, declare these things, Titus. Declare them. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul, to his young son in the faith, the young minister Titus, he says, these are the things, Titus, that you're to teach. This produces soundness. It might not be easy. It's going to need some grace upon your teaching. It's going to need you to be truthful. Sometimes you will get to use these things as an opportunity to encourage, and other times you're going to have to use these teachings to rebuke and to correct. You're going to have to pull some things down so that other things can be built up. So Titus, with all authority, teach these things. And so Titus was to do these things knowing that it was to help followers of Jesus. It was to help Christians in Crete. For us as a church, we teach these things because it helps us live for Jesus in Gibsons, amen, on the Sunshine Coast. It helps us become more like Christ. And so this morning... I just give you this encouragement. You're like, man, there's some things out of order in my life as I consider this. Look it, here would be my encouragement. Take it to the Lord. Say, God, would you forgive me and purify me of this unrighteousness? And I ask now, I'm asking for your grace. I'm asking that that grace that redeemed me, that's transforming me, that promises reward to me, would be the motivating power, the fuel and the engine of my life. And so let me pray for you in that direction this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We'll close with a song. Lord, would you stand with me? Lord, this morning, uh, we just confess that we need you, God. As Paul talks to Titus about all these nitty-gritty areas of life, God, we're reminded that we need your grace. We are insufficient for these things. Who is sufficient for these things? But Jesus, you're enough. And you pour out your grace upon our lives. And so, Lord, this morning, we just ask for a fresh filling of your grace, Lord, your unmerited favor. We ask, Lord, that as those who seek to live soundly, to have sound doctrine, that the strength to do so would not be come from inside of ourselves, that it would not be something that we would try to muster ourselves, but that, Lord, we would say to you, God, I need you, and I'm asking for your help here. And so, Lord, this morning we do that. We humble ourselves before you. We confess that, Jesus, we're unable to save ourselves. We're unable to get victory over sin. We're unable to subdue the passions of the flesh, run able to be motivated to live for the kingdom of God. But God, by your grace, you do these things in us. And so Lord, we invite you, transform us, change us, make us better husbands and wives, make us better parents, and make us better workers so that your word would not be maligned and that people would be drawn to you. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.